Welcome to Autism Weekly, the podcast that discusses autism news, current events, and inclusion. Each week, we welcome a guest to the program to share their unique perspective and expertise as it relates to the fascinating world of autism. I'm your host, Jeff Skabitsky. I'm the founder and president at ABS. I've been in the field of autism and applied behavior analysis as a clinician and advocate for nearly two decades. Today, we're going to be talking about tips for parents for children with autism and parent self-care. This is something that a lot of people have been asking about in our podcast and outside of our podcast is when are we going to tackle this issue? The autism experience can be challenging and it can be rewarding. And what we need for families to realize is that self-care is not a selfish act. It actually empowers you through the process. This week, we're excited to discuss tips and go through some of the experiences of family. We welcome Dr. Natalie Roth, a clinical psychologist. She specializes in childhood neurodevelopmental delays, and she's the vice president of clinical psychology services at ABS. Natalie oversees the diagnostic assessment process and has years of experience guiding parents on what they might expect after receiving a diagnosis of autism for their child. Dr. Roth, welcome to the podcast. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, we're super excited. We, I, I imagine that you have a ton of stories to add to this discussion. So, Dr. Roth, let's start at the beginning. What is it like for a parent after learning that their child has a diagnosis of autism? Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's always important to keep in mind that prior to that first call that a parent would make to set up the diagnostic appointment, it looks like her research, they have been concerned about their child for upwards of two years on average. So I think I think that one of the things that um, I think people in the situation of diagnosing autism really need to be aware of is that this is a parent who has been watching their child develop and grow. And it's almost as if they're taking every moment you know, that their child is doing something to evaluate. Is this normal? Is this not normal? Um, What does this mean? And that kind of emotional back and forth has been happening for a long time. So by the time they get down to having them tested, um, I feel like in a lot of ways for parents, it's a, it's a relief just to be tackling the, the, the question that's been on their mind for so long. Um, but there's also still a hope that, hey, this I'm not seeing this correctly, or the people that have told me to get a diagnosis, they're, they're off about something, and, and what I'm going to hear is that everything's okay, um, and that I can just go on as normal. Um, and so I think that there's also a sense of grief that goes along with hearing, um, look, this child's developmental trajectory is going to look different, and that's going to have an impact on the um, plan that you had for him, him, her, and your family. Um, and I think those, both of those emotions uh, need to be respected and balanced as you kind of um, take the first few days after a diagnosis to really get your head around the fact that you've reached a new point in this, in this questioning. You had said that the parents have this insight that they're coming into the meeting with. And that they've been watching their child and they're recognizing, you know, some of the differences. Do you have, do you have some, some examples so we can kind of understand, you know, the parents saw this or they came in 
with this as their big concern, which maybe from the clinical lens wouldn't have been one of those things that I would have been targeting right off the bat. But from the parenting lens, something was just slightly askew or something was different that they were questioning. Yeah, definitely. And um, I, I, I will have to say it's mostly the mothers, but you will start talking to a mom who says, um, you know, when I was as early as when I was breastfeeding this child, for example, they, they, this felt really different to me. Or when I was trying to soothe them, they just didn't respond to me. I couldn't get them to relax in my arms. Um, As they grew older and I tried to uh, play peekaboo with them, I couldn't get that kind of smile, that sense of things are, this, this child is showing joy and interacting with me. And I think it is, there's this kind of gut level feeling um, that something maybe just isn't happening the way it should. Uh, First time parents then often doubt that because they don't have anything to compare it to. I think if you have other children that you've had that experience with, you're maybe a little more confident in that intuition. Yeah. And I would imagine is that going through that experience for the parent is that they feel like they don't have any sort of power in the situation or that they're doing something wrong because their child isn't responding the right way. I could see the emotional part of that of what am I doing? Why, why isn't my child doing what I'm expecting or what everybody tells me or what the book says? I mean, oh, yeah. I think it's, I mean, parenting in general is such an emotional experience. I always remember that um, the sort of uh, America's pediatrician, Terry Breselton, um, used to say a pediatrician should tell a mom every time she walks in the door that she's doing a good job because all throughout her day, every day, she's saying, am I doing a good enough job? Am I, am I a good enough parent? Um, and when from the beginning you have a child that doesn't respond to even some of the basic things that you want to do as a parent, can I stop you from crying? Can I feed you? Can I get you to sleep? Can I, um, can I share some kind of funny game with you? And they're not responding. Um, it absolutely makes you doubt whether or not there's something that you're doing wrong. Yeah. You start turning to the advice that you usually get, whether it's books or other parents, um, your grandma, your mother, your, uh, you know, your father, and their instinct in my experience is to reassure you. And so they might say, uh, you know, either give you a little bit of advice or say, don't worry, you're worried too much. Like, and, and that is a very confusing place for a parent to be in between their instinct and their sort of um, the reassurance they're getting from what they read or what they hear. So, I mean, you have parents that are already stressed. They have gone through trying to seek out all the familiar advice that they could possibly get. Now they come in because that concern has gotten to a peak. And now they've come in to meet with somebody who could help with the diagnosis. After that diagnosis is delivered, I would imagine there's a sense of relief of, you know, okay, well, I, at least, at least I'm not going crazy. Like I did see something here. But there's also that step of what comes next. So what do you tell parents to help them prepare for, okay, we now have understood that these things that you're seeing, they exist. (laughs) That's not a figment of your imagination. How do we prepare them for that next step after getting that diagnosis of autism? Yeah, you're 
that question reminds me of um, a family I worked with a, a year or so ago. And the uh, mom and dad came in and they were definitely concerned and they were um, honest about what they felt like wasn't going um, right developmentally for their child. But they were also, they also had a long list of things that they felt like uh, were his strengths that were going well. And they, they, I got, I was very clear that they didn't want me to ignore those, that they needed me to take into account both of those things and walk them through the process of um, why I still think your child has autism, even though these, these developmental strengths that I can see and are still in place. Um, so I, they are a good example of that sense of hope and maybe a little bit of defensiveness about the diagnosis. And at the same time, that sense of, I really need to know what's going on here so that I can feel effective and help them. Um, so part of it is making sure that the diagnostic process is also a therapeutic process and that you're really showing parents that I see your child as, the, as a child and I'm not just looking for these things that would allow me to diagnose him or, or some people fear label them. Um, and I think if you do that well, then part of the part of where you end up, which is what brought this family to mind for me, is, again, that sense of grief, but also a sense of, okay, now it's time for me to turn the corner and try to accept that my life is going to look different and that his life is going to look different. Um, and, and what I had told this mom at the time was, um, take some time, make sure you give yourself that time because you're going through a huge change rally all of your support, the people that you trust, the people that you care about, bring them onto that team. And then let's find a professional team of clinicians to also to, to join you because we're going to need to get to know this child across his lifespan. Yeah. I mean, just I'm envisioning in my head right now, a parent in your, your office getting their diagnosis. They come in initially confused. They come in probably a little bit scared, like they don't know what's going to happen. They get the answer and it's like a sense of relief, but that sense seems like it's periodic. It's going to leave. And then all of a sudden that wave comes back. Right, oh right. my goodness. Um, what in the world do I do now? I knew there was a problem, but I hadn't gotten to the solution phase yet. I hadn't gotten to that. And now they're even more overwhelmed at times because their daily schedule change. They are having to reprioritize some things in their life. We have a lot of really good examples of being a caregiver for a child with autism leading to a more substantiated life. The family's really succeeding to that, but it took effort to get there, I'm sure. It took, like what you said, that team. But what does it take on the family side to make sure that they're prepared for the changes for themselves, not just for their child, but how are they caring for themselves? Yeah, you know, I think you're right. Those first, I, again, like those first few days after a diagnosis, I think you, you, have, to, you have to do that sort of self-care that allows yourself to take things step by step. Um, I try to have people leave with three action points. You know, so you're, sometimes you get this huge list of referrals and people to call and things to do. And um, you feel like you have to get your master's degree in special education. And, and then you have to become an expert in autism. I, I usually tell people to be careful about what they Google and try to send them to, 
to sites that we know have well-curated information because that can also become really overwhelming. Um, the Autism Speaks for a 100-Day Kit, which is kind of how to think through the first 100 days after diagnosis is a, is a good um, way to start without getting overwhelmed by information, I think. Um, but I think accept all of the kind of feelings and emotions you are going to have and accept the feelings and emotions that your partner is going to have um, and find people to talk about that with so that you can go through the process of kind of accepting. Because I think the, the research you're getting at that starts to show that there's a, more satisfaction sometimes in raising a special needs child. I, I think in some ways that's based in the idea that you have learned to accept that child as they are and accept what that means for you as a parent at an earlier stage than a lot of neurotypical parents do who continue to have this push and pull with their child, right, about who they are and what they can do and what your dreams are versus their dreams and things like that. But I, you have to let yourself go through the process of accepting it um, with a, a team of people before, yeah, I, before that happens. I, I think that what you were saying is so important, is getting that clinical team together, making sure that people are on the same page, that you've processed what it's going to be, that then you go find the resources. I, at times, I believe it is hard for a family to still take that step back because parenting a child with special needs at times is a 24 seven job. It never ends. And it's hard to get that concept of my personal self care is not a selfish act. How do you convince families of that? Yeah, it's so hard. I had a, a family in um, just last week whose child, like a lot of child children with autism, um, wasn't sleeping well. And, and so, I mean, this is a family who has been chronically sleep deprived across the board for almost two years. And, and so in some ways, you know, the, the sort of um, truisms that we say about parent self-care, you know, take the oxygen down from the plane and, and renew yourself before you help your child um, feel, I think, a little bit um, unsatisfying to parents like that because the, their very basic needs feel like they're not being taken care of. Um, but the truth, the, the real truth of the matter is, um, is that you now as a, as a special needs parent have a, a challenging job of being an advocate, a learner, um, the basic caretaker for not only your um, special needs child, but the rest of your family. Um, and you're, you, you, you didn't go to school for that. You're not prepared for that. And most people who give you advice aren't um, specialists in that. And I think I, I do feel like part of what I might be telling parents in that situation is um, if you're, let's start with your basic needs, because if your basic needs aren't met, then we're not going to get to the point where you feel good about you know, doing a job in those other areas. I think a lot of parents too um, feel like they, they hesitate to ask for help and ask for support. You know, um, I think if your child gets a medical diagnosis, you feel like you feel more confident in going to people and saying, I'm not sleeping. Can you come and help, you know, get up with my child so I can get a good night's sleep? And, and I try to encourage them to say, this is significant and you need to get your the team that you would call on and have them help you. 
Now, when you're talking about those basic needs, um, it, it feels to me like there's there are those basic needs. But I look at self-care being a far broader issue. And I mean, that could be everything from additional personal hygiene time. So going and getting taking care of yourself, going and you know, getting getting your hair cut, getting uh, for for somebody getting their nails done, going and getting massage, uh, going and exercising, um, to anything like meditation, yoga, finding a hobby. Um, so when you're looking at those basic care needs, and then you look at those expanded care needs, how do families find the time, the resources, the money? to be able to do what is necessary to take care of their child. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I can see all the Instagram moms doing their hard eye roll at advice that says like, well, just take some time to go get your nails done. Right. It feels like, are you kidding me? Like I've got, I've got a mountain full of laundry and it takes me an hour to get my child dressed and things like Mm -hmm. that. Um, So I, I think, Part of the, you know, part of what has to happen first is a sense of um, someone coming to the point where they feel like this is this is not something I'm going to solve today, next week, in a year. I have this has to be part of my lifestyle, and taking care of myself has to be part of that. So whatever it is, I need to be. Um, clear with all of the other people that are helping take care of this child that there are things that I'm going to need in order to um, do this for the long haul in order to kind of run this marathon and I think that I also think it's really helpful to learn to sort of gauge your burnout you know gauge your level of burnout so just in the same way we might um you know, take our heart rate while we're exercising or count calories or do those kinds of things. This is a health issue. It it does affect your physical health. And I think some kind of metric that says to you, this is my energy level. This is what I feel like I can cope with today. Um, These are, this is, this is how I feel after I've done self-care is important because you have to be able to monitor that for yourself. And the truth is, uh, Burnout is like a catchphrase, but it's also a real mental health condition. And true burnout means that your energy, your attention, your risk of depression and anxiety at a clinical level are all going, are all at risk. Um, And those, and as well as your physical health um, and all of those, that, because that's real, um, it's not it's not self-care for you isn't, isn't a selfish act. It's I need to be functioning at the very best I can function. It it sounds like the best thing most parents can do is to prioritize that time as much as they're prioritizing their treatment for their child is prioritizing the time to make sure that they're in a good space to be that best parent. Uh, And there are resources out there. There's respite care. There's, there's treatment that comes in like ABA for their child where take that little gap of time, go read a book, step aside, go for a walk, uh, you know, do some exercise or just take that time to take a nap or relax, whatever is healthy for you and find a way to make sure that it's, it's helping you get to that better space because when the treatment team does leave, 
that enables you to be a wonderful, active, engaged parent. And then to get to what we were talking about earlier, that true happiness of being a parent of a child who has any type of special need. And so can you give me some perspective on families that you've seen that have taken care of themselves? And you've actually seen from that first visit you had to maybe a visit a year or two later where you see them just happy, ecstatic, seeing the joys, seeing those accomplishments, those milestones of their family, of their child. Do you have any examples of that? Yeah, yeah. One one really uh, strong example comes to mind. Um, and I, I think this illustrates the point of also needing your your partner to be involved in whatever self-care you both are doing. I think a lot of parents feel like um, they're being judged if they take care of themselves, um, either by the outside world, but also by their partner who might feel like, why are you doing this instead of this? And so this is a couple um, that came to mind who brought their young um, son in for a diagnosis. He was, um, his autism meant that he was tantruming multiple times through the day, not communicating, um, just a really hard kid to kind of take care of. Um, And both parents were also feeling that that was putting a a strain and stress on their marriage. They were not physically feeling healthy. Um, And through the process of getting their team together, um, identifying people within their family system that could support them, um, and then um, seeing as they implemented an integrated ABA into their life, they started to feel more empowered in terms of how they could manage those tantrums. They started to see their son make communication gains. Um, And at the same time, they had really put a focus on communicating with each other and trying to understand how to let the other one have the time they needed. So mom got back into horseback riding. Uh, Dad got back into um, managing his aquarium, which he loved. Um, This is, I'm wrapping it up as if it was easy. It was not easy. There's a lot of communication and a lot of learning that had to go on. Um, But I remember getting a a picture and a message from them about a couple years into this where mom was in tears watching her daughter golf with her husband or her son golf with her husband um, and, and they felt, I guess the word that comes to mind is they really felt empowered as parents that we know how to handle this as it goes along. But part of it is that we also know how to handle ourselves. Yeah. I, I think that story actually sums up quite a bit of that experience is that the autism experience in general for parents, it can be emotionally challenging and it can be emotionally rewarding. But through that process is that those same key tenants keep popping their popping their way onto and into the dialogue is self-care. It's not a selfish act. It's actually making the entire family unit and that care for your child stronger. Uh, being a caregiver is rewarding, but you need to be able to take the steps to make sure that you have the energy, you have the time for yourself to be that best caregiver. And that, you know, it's, easier said than done, but doing it is so rewarding in the long term. So sticking to the course. Do you have any last kind of words of wisdom, advice for families that are listening today that either are in this experience 
or potentially will be entering into this experience because they're at that first stage where you're saying, you know, I'm seeing something different and, and it's, it's concerning me right now or confusing me. Do you have yeah. last words? Um, you know what comes to mind, Jeff, is I think that setting expectations is probably a really good place to start. So part of getting that team together is, is to really have a good sense of what do, I, what do I expect for my child in the next six months? What do I expect for myself? And being both realistic and hopeful about those. And then adding into that expectation, I need to make sure that we're taking this kind of on a day-to-day basis and that we're all getting what we need day-to-day. And that might mean that um, some of my anxiety about what is like making sure that I'm doing everything I can is, is taken care of because you know, okay, we've set this expectation, we have this in place, and we're evaluating and measuring it as we go. So I don't need to make sure that everything is done today or that, and, and that leaves you time and, I, and frankly, just energy and a less anxiety so that when you go to do some of those things that renew you, they're actually beneficial. Well, I think that that's a, a great place to leave families today with those thoughts, that last kind of place of, you know, there's there's a way to operate through this and there's a positive uh, conclusion at the end. Um, yeah. So I really appreciate your time today, Dr. Roth. I think that it gave a lot of insight and just sharing those experiences that families are going through helps to put things into perspective and give a path towards accomplishment and to know that, you know, there's a way to get back to that real excitement and seeing those gains and having my family really be able to benefit from my, my, the differences that my child has versus it being at all a burden. And so I thank you so much for sharing those experiences today. Absolutely. It doesn't feel like a privilege, Jeff, that families have allowed us to watch that in, in their own um, experience. That Absolutely. joy that comes from, look at what my kid did. It's, it's, it's a privilege. No, absolutely. Well, thanks again. We do appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all of the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.